Welcome to the Captive Thoughts Podcast, where we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. At least we try to. <laughs> this is your host, Kyle McCallum, and with me as always, hello, Adam Esterly. Uh, we are teacher, Bible teachers at Freedom Fellowships in Kent, Ohio, and today we're talking about the latest Actually, technically not the latest. There's been more Supreme Court rulings in this past week. It's been a very busy week for the Supreme Court. We're talking about last week's ruling on the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Yes, indeed. Anyways, talk about astonishing. It's a day I never thought would happen. I thought as a culture we were progressing more and more towards a wider acceptance of abortion. Things were looking grim. And... Uh, you know, and here we are. Just recently, they've ter- overturned it. Amazing. We're celebrating today. Yeah. Cheers, my friend. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, so I think uh, perhaps a good way to start would be to talk about, uh, you know, what exactly is Roe v. Wade. Um, you know what? There's a lot of confusion on what the Supreme Court really did yeah, last exactly. week in regards to this. A lot of people are saying the Supreme Court has banned abortion and, uh, you know, that no one's going to be able to get abortion anywhere. You know, a lot of misinformation out there. So Adam and I did our research on what exactly this decision entailed. And a good place to start, I think, is just talking about what Roe v. Wade was. Because a lot of people don't understand what Roe yes. v. Wade even was. I love using that term, was. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Roe v. Wade, Pat, uh, that was in 1973, the uh, Supreme Court uh, threw this decision out there um, that basically, in effect, protects uh, the rights of mothers to get an abortion. Um, they, you know, the Supreme Court, the role of the Supreme Court is to uphold the Constitution, right? At least in theory. The Supreme Court is supposed to take uh, laws that are passed and analyze them before the Constitution to see if they are constitutional or non-unconstitutional. And so in this case, uh, you know, there's, um, you know, the case that they were looking at, you know, a woman who is uh, seeking abortion uh, couldn't under Texas law. And so, you know, the Supreme Court were seeing this to see, like, you know, if Texas passing laws banning abortion were constitutional or not. So they ruled that it was unconstitutional, that abortion is a right that is protected under the 14th Amendment, according to Roe v. Wade decision, uh, under the right to privacy um, section there. So a right to privacy protects a woman's right to have an abortion, according to the Roe v. Wade decision. And so as part of that decision, um, the court went on to uh, basically develop a three-trimester system um, that essentially the, you know, uh, lawmakers, you can't regulate, you know, uh, abortion or ban abortion in the first trimester, uh, second trimester, they're granted a little more freedom there, um, in terms of, you know, life of the mother, these kind of considerations. Um, and then, uh, third trimester, their states are able to ban abortions, uh, to an extent, to an extent. And so because this would be the viability of the uh, child uh, is greater in the third trimester. Um, So, you know, the Supreme Court looked at this decision recently and determined that, um, 
you know, this was just a bad decision. And actually, this is, you know, what, uh, um, you know, opponents to Roe v. Wade have been arguing all along is that Roe v. Wade is just bad law because, um, you know, here you have the judicial system overstepping its bounds um, and taking a moral stance on an issue and, and going beyond just interpreting the Constitution, but, you know, kind of throwing their activism out there. And there's this term called judicial activism. And it's the idea that, um, you know, the, the Supreme Court is using their power to basically legislate, even though they're not supposed to be legislators, but in effect, legislate uh, on behalf of the rest of the country. And this is what they did with Roe v. Wade, um, for sure, you know, as they're developing this three-trimester system and making laws around where abortions can be restricted and not restricted. You know, this is definitely going beyond, uh, you know, the powers that the Supreme Court is supposed to have. You know, Supreme Court, I mean, you said it well today, Adam, that, you know, they're just supposed to say, is this constitutional or not? Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, you know, something I've been thinking about and hearing a lot about is people either being excited or I guess more so in this sense um, angry that the Supreme Court is doing something or or banning this, prohibiting that, uh, passing a law for this or that, specifically with abortion. But really they they shouldn't be used as a uh, a club, so to speak, to push anyone's agenda. Really what they should be doing is looking at legislation passed from – you know, the other branch of the government and then yeah. them being the third branch of the government coming in and saying, hey, is this legislation constitutional or not? And so we see that in the in the you know 1973 Roe v. Wade, what they had to do was they, they took the 14th Amendment where, you know, it granted some things, life, liberty, property, things like that. And they looked at liberty and they, they kind of shoehorned um, this right to privacy in there. And, and Thomas actually um, talks about this in, in his um, – concurring opinion, he says, quote, the court divined a right to abortion because it, quote, felt that, quote, the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty included a, quote, right to privacy that is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. He then goes on to say that, quote, the right to abortion is ultimately a policy goal a policy in desperate search of a constitutional justification. Yeah. So in other words, from Roe v. Wade, they're saying, yeah, the Constitution protects abortion for sure. Correct. But then when, when you actually look at it objectively, does it really protect abortion as you're reading the Constitution? Do you think that this is the, 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 our, our founding fathers, as they're drafting the Constitution, you know, are they considering, um, uh, yeah, abortion for sure should be protected? <laughs> yeah, he goes on to say that there, there's no way that the, the framers of the 14th Amendment, which— is 1868. Oh, yeah. So it wouldn't even be the founding fathers. Be well no, after, yeah. but anyway, yeah. They, they that he, I think he used the term farcical when he said that the, it would be farcical to think that these framers of that amendment had abortion in mind whatsoever. Yeah. Absolutely. So they're obviously, you know, that was that was why Roe v. Wade is considered by many to be bad law. They're really stretching the Constitution uh, beyond the breaking point and going beyond the constitution to essentially create new legislation that the rest of the country has to follow. And so, you know, this is not certainly not what the Supreme court is supposed to be doing anyway. So this is all kind of what went into the court's recent decision to overturn Roe v. Wade It's bad law. Um, and so, and so let's, let's, let's toss it out. And, you know, this was done a majority decision. Um, you know, the, the, what was it? Five, uh, justices, that signed on um, the majority, conservative majority, that's within the, the Supreme Court. 
which, uh, you know, really put the court in this tipping point. Um, as a lot of abortion advocates feared, um, you know, were the appointing of three uh, conservative judges during the Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can say what you want about Donald Trump and his presidency, but one thing we can be grateful for is, you know, if, if uh, he was not president, um, you know, these judges that were appointed in a short amount of time uh, would likely not be conservative, and Roe v. Wade would most likely still be in place today. Uh, so just something Getting to think about problem. there. Yeah. So anyway, uh, overturned the argument uh, that the majority used is that, uh, you know, the, the case that the Constitution prote- protects abortion is a weak argument. Um, yeah, the Supreme Court is supposed to interpret the Constitution, not legislate, um, you know. And that's why a lot of people, you know, who are saying like, okay, this is the Supreme, this is the Supreme Court really overstepping their power because they're stepping into a ban abortions. Um, but it's really the opposite, right? This is not the uh, Supreme Court exercising power. It's taking themselves out of the decision. Yes. And so this decision to overturn Roe v. Wade is not the Supreme Court legislating against abortion. It is giving it up to the states to decide for themselves. Correct, which means that um, though though we are, you know, some people might be in a frenzy of sorts that democracy is at stake, this is the definition of democracy. It is the Supreme Court saying we, as the federal branch, you know, uh, with powers that be, will not take a st- stance on this, but instead we will return the power to the states, for yes. the states to decide, which then translates to the power going back to the voters. Yes. And so people can vote on people who will be pro or against abortion um, yes. at their you know state level there. Absolutely. So the decision's back to the states on uh, you know whether to ban abortion or not. So the court's not taking an official stance there. All the court's saying is that uh, the Constitution does not guarantee the right to abortion. Uh, thus, um, yeah, the states can come up with their own laws governing that. Anyway, so so that was the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Um, you know, as part of this decision. Uh, any Supreme Court decision, there is a um, there is a dissent that's typically goes along with this. So this would be the um, justices that do not go along with the majority opinion. They will write a dissent on why they didn't go along with it. And so uh, you know you have like Sonia Sotomayor uh, among two others that uh, wrote the dissent. And uh, I actually read through all these the concurrences. So this would be like opinions written by justices that went along with the majority decision, along with the, the dissents. Um, There's hundreds of pages worth of stuff, but I did work my way through this stuff. And uh, so reading the dissent, some inter- interesting things. You know, what really struck me about the dissent um, written by the justices that do not agree with the decision to overthrow, overturn Roe v. Wade was essentially their argument really was not a, an argument grounded based on the Constitution. It was a grounded based on, uh, you know, abortion is helpful and good for women, thus we should protect abortion. Which, in my opinion, again, is the Supreme Court attempting to overstep its bounds, right? It's, it's not, you know, they're not even using legal arguments. They weren't using um, constitutional arguments. They're using the argument that, uh, you know, we need to protect women. Because, um, so for example... I have this quote in the dissent. I think this is uh, Sonia Sotomayor. She says, young women today will come out, uh, will come of age with fewer rights than their mothers and grandmothers. 
Uh, indeed, they said the court's opinion means that from the very moment of fertilization, a woman has no rights to speak of. A state can force her to bring a pregnancy to term, even at the steepest personal and familial familial costs. Um, all right. So and that basically encapsulates their entire dissent that, you know, it's, we need to protect women. They're losing their rights. Uh, which, again, that's a great example of judicial activism, right? It's not the court's, uh, uh, this is not the court's role is to legislate, to put legislation out, new legislation out there to protect what they perceive, um, you know, as, quote unquote, women's rights. Instead, they're supposed to uh, interpret the Constitution. And if it can't, if they can't do that, and they recognize their case is weak, that the Constitution does not explicitly protect abortion. They know that case is weak, so they're not making that very strongly, you know. Um, and if they can't make that case, then obviously overturning Roe v. Wade is the right choice. Anyway, what's also struck me about the dissent that they wrote is that they, you know, put a lot of emphasis here on protecting the rights of women to choose for themselves, right? Um, However, no uh, consideration in the dissent is given uh, for the rights of the unborn, right? There's like a philosophical, theological, hmm, spiritual assumption that's being made here that the rights that the uh, child in the womb inherently have no rights, aka, you know, they're not really human. So that's the assumption that the dissenters here are coming to the table with. Um, and that's the point that the concurrence made, written by um, uh, Clarence Thomas, Justice Clarence Thomas, among the others, um, make this point that, you know, Roe v. Wade and these dissenters, because uh, actually they were able to reply to the dissent, what they say, uh, you know, you're giving no considerations for the rights of the state to look out for the life of, the, of newborns or, you know, babies in the womb. Um, that, that's a right that they're, the dissenters are not even considering. They're not considering the rights of the unborn. They don't even consider that an issue. Um, but, you know, they make the case that the state should take an interest in the life of unborn, that that is a consideration, right? Absolutely. I mean, who, who else is even going to look out for the rights of the preborn? You know, yeah. They can't speak for themselves. They can't vote for themselves. Um, so who, who's going to do that, that dirty work there? Right. Exactly. Um, so anyway, you know, it's very one-sided, you know, as that was the argument of the, uh, I will say that the, uh, the dissent went out, like quote you had, um, some other quotes here. Um, uh, it seemed to be a emotionally charged work of writing, you know, yes, uh, very emotionally you, you charged. read Thomas and there's, there's quote after quote of, uh, you know, previous, um, precedent and things like that. And there's not many, um, uh, footnotes in the dissent, uh, at least relatively speaking, but even the quote you brought up there that. It says, from the very moment of fertilization, a woman has no rights to speak of. Uh, pretty emotional and intense language there. I mean, it, it will just in, incorrect. I mean, um, that no rights to speak of, it makes it sound like there's this universal woman as property, woman as absolutely no rights yeah, at all. Just it's such an obvious overstatement. It's like so I, overstatement. She should be embarrassed including that in her dissent because it's so demonstrably wrong. Literally, women have zero yeah, rights. It, it, Are you real? You're going to put that in an official legal that, document? That should be a tweet, not a uh, you know, yeah, legal document. But another thing that is mentioned here that um, is emotionally charged is um, I think it was Sotomayor um, was bringing it up, and she she talked about um, rape and incest in her mm. dissenting piece, which has been something I was looking into recently. 
And uh, there was a study done on 75,000 abortions in Florida. Um, I forget which year, but recently, um, one of these past years. Of the 75,000, only 0.1% of them were because of rape, and 0.01% of them were because of incest. Um, Now, these things would be horrible situations to be in. Yeah. Um, Terrible. Um, You know, the woman being obviously... Uh, abused and taken advantage of to tremendous degrees um, and, and lots to consider there. But the point I'm trying to make is that these are fringe cases, mo- f- extremely fringe, 0.1 and 0.01% of cases and, and used and brought up always, you know, constantly in the, in the discussion um, because it, because it brings an emotional charge there of makes you stop and think like, wow, that those would be horrendous situations. Yes, and, but absolutely. everyone agrees. All 330 million people in America agree that rape and incest would be horrendous situations to be in. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, you know, I, I remember having a discussion with a friend of mine about this before, because that, that, this is what, you know, pro-abortion advocates will argue. Like, well, you know, what about the, the rape and incest cases and stuff? You're just saying that they're just screwed. And, uh, you know, so I, I, you know, told him like, look, you know, that is a tough situation. And you know what, you know, maybe, maybe we could find some sort of agreement somewhere in there. Maybe. I mean, really, I, I think abortion, even in those circumstances, you don't write an evil by doing another evil in my opinion. But anyway, but it's not the point. I'm like, okay, maybe we could, we could talk. You're right. We'll talk. We could talk more about that for sure. But can we at least agree that abortion, uh, you know, based on convenience, just cause I want should be outlawed, should be banned. It's not good. No, you know, it's like, no, definitely no. not. So that's where, like, if we can't even agree on 99% of abortions here, then what are we talking yeah, about? Yeah, I would you know? love I would love for us to just universally ban the 99.9%. Yeah. And then we can discuss this point, uh, this combined 0.1%. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, the, the vast majority of abortions, absolutely, it's based on convenience. It's based, you know, and so, and the other argument, too, is the that, uh, you know, it's an undue financial burden, um, you know, having, having a child, but you know, that's the reality of the reality of being in America, at least is that like, if you have a child and you are low on money, um, you are almost never going to starve to death and, and your child starve to death. Like there are plenty of programs and there's plenty of resources available to you that you're not going to starve. You might be poverty, and you certainly might not be able to do all the things that you used to be able to do and the things that you'd like to do. But, you know, the, the, the danger of, you know, these mothers who are going to be, quote unquote, forced to give birth and have their child, they're all going to die. And, you know, these children are going to die way overstated. You sure. know, it's just an emotional argument. Anyway, I think well, that yeah. I, I think that this this is important to talk about uh, this legal basis, because you could, you know, forgetting the moral argument or the spiritual argument. You can still make a case that this is bad legal precedent, but we still do come to the issue now um, that you know that we're here to talk about too, especially. Um, yeah. Is- well, let's talk too. So I'll also mention by this overturn, the effect is going to be that yeah, it's given over to the states. The states will decide what to happen, what will happen, and so this doesn't mean abortion's gone. Uh, the uh, states will decide, and it looks like roughly half the states are going to put heavier restrictions on abortion and make it harder. Um, Meanwhile, half aren't going to do anything, and even some are going to give even more freedoms, you know, towards abor- abortion, particularly in California, and New York, and so people who live there, they're really upset by this. You know, they don't understand. Many of them don't understand that now you, you'll still be able to get abortion if you want to, uh, but that just means, uh, yeah, the states have, have the decision now, and this abortion fight is far from over. 
because yeah. it's still uh, with us. And we're at the point now where it's, you know, you, we can start making arguments about this because this is what Roe v. Wade prevented. It prevented real discussion, real change, you know, happening until Roe v. Wade was overturned because, you know, Roe v. Wade said the government, the federal government's going to stand in your way of banning abortions. Now that's not a barrier. Um, now it can be banned. Thus, we can have discussions around this. We can have debates around this because, you know, we could have an effect on legislation that will yeah. ban I, abortions. I, yeah. I, I was uh, obviously happy to hear it overturned, but I, I was, um, you know, kind of maybe my joy was stifled a bit thinking that it's just going to go back to the states and states, many states will still allow it as yeah. if nothing changed. But, uh, you know, I was comforted from hearing from some reliable sources that still millions of babies' lives will be yes. saved because of this overturning, um, which is pretty great. Yeah, even considering the states that will. No, we have to... something to celebrate. Absolutely, yeah, a yeah, big absolutely. win. Uh, abortion being banned in half the states means absolutely abortions are going to go down. Number of abortions, so that alone is worth celebrating. But got a long road ahead of us for sure. Speaking of emotional arguments, too, I was thinking of a positive emotional argument. Yeah, <laughs> and that is, I keep thinking of the woman or the family and say a red state now that would have otherwise had an abortion, but because, you know, the red state's allowed to, they have some anti-abortion laws now in place or will have. And now they're going to go through with that pregnancy. And then as myself having a little two-year-old, I can't wait to see how many family stories are going to come out with their little two-year-old there that pre this decision, they would have absolutely aborted. And otherwise now they wouldn't have. They'd be able to enjoy that. I, I I can't wait to hear some testimonies along those lines. Absolutely. Um, yeah, good point. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing, uh, how many stories I've I've just read online of, um, you know, mothers who've, uh, decided not to go through with an abortion and had their child and are just so grateful that they made that decision. I mean, a child really is a gift and a blessing. The Bible tells us that, you know, but anyway, you know, but the abortion at the heart of the debate, at the heart of the debate, when you get past all the sloganeering and all the you know, legal mumbo jumbo, the mumbo jumbo <laughs> and all this, you know, all the arguments people throw out there that are so emotionally charged. Really, what's that question at the heart of it is one is human life inherently sacred is human life inherently valuable. Um, and number two is a preborn baby human life. Does that count as human life? Um, that's at the heart of the debate, and it really cuts to right because you have the arguments that well, doesn't a woman have a right to choose? Like, yeah, well, um, sure, just like I have a right to choose. Everyone has a right to choose. However, those rights, you know, we typically agree end when it comes to bringing harm or certainly killing another human being. Uh, I don't have the right to kill you, Adam. <laughs> I would be very much a uh, few, uh, yeah, doing some evil and terrible there, uh, hypothetically. At least, <laughs> but um, so. But the question is then: Yeah, is the preborn baby a human life then, or not? Because sure. and if it is, then uh, no, a, a woman doesn't have a right to choose to kill another human. It's mm-hmm. kind of it. But and so that, that's the question: Is it life or not? And is life sacred? Um, and if so, killing is just wrong. So let's look at that from a spiritual perspective. We talk about the legal stuff. Uh, let's see what the Bible has to say about this, because. Uh, by and large, the Christian community has stood, you know, for many, many years against abortion and stood for life. And there's a reason for that, because there is a biblical case that the preborn are is life and uh, that it's wrong to take it. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, we know, first of all, you know, is human life inherently sacred? Yes. 
Genesis 1 is clear on this. God creates man and woman, and he creates them in his image. So every human is an image bearer of God. Thus, each human has inherent value. We're not like the animals, and we just we can tell that. We feel that naturally. We, we understand that there's something special about a human life compared to you know a bug life or whatever. Sure. <laughs> um, that humans are, are, are something special. Um, something, uh, and so that's why you read in the, the Old Testament, especially laws against murder, right? It's wrong to take human life, human life in particular, mm-hmm. because, uh, yeah, human life is valuable. Yeah, I mean, so God sets kill. up a sacrificial system where you do something wrong and you're allowed to take the lives of multiple animals. Um, not only is it okay, but, but he commands it. And yet you have, you know, Ten Commandments uh, not allowing murder there. But this even goes back to Genesis chapter 9. Where, where, where God says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in, in his own image. Boom. So, right. he puts, so he puts a penalty there for anyone who kills man, and he gives the reason why. And he says, for God made him in his own image. So there's yeah. some value, inherent value there. Yes. Human. Yeah, and you could, I mean, um, you know, you can just tell. You can just tell. Like, people recognize that there's something special about us. And it's something that that uh, points to the existence of God, you know, that... that uh, that there's something special about humans. Because if there was no God, there really isn't. You know, we're just a really smart ape, you know, sure. uh, animal. But there's something inherent in all of us that we can kind of tell, like, oh, because killing a human is kind of messed up on a whole another level. Anyway, uh, yeah, Bible's clear on that. Let me ask you a question then. Um, if all life is sacred, as that, those scriptures say, these seem to be talking about men, or men and women, or adults, how do we know that a baby in a womb is human life? Do you have any scripture for right. that? Right. Well, that goes to the second part. We have established human life is sacred. Now is a baby in a womb human life. Now, this is where actually, um, you know, the Bible is not as explicitly clear on, right? But we have indications and implications of scripture on this. Because, you know, I, one question that we ask is like, because... God, you know, give, what, what makes humankind special, right? We're creating the image of God. We're given a soul. That's the big difference. We're given a soul. So at what point does the breath of life, does God give us that? God gives us a soul. At what stage in the pregnancy? I don't know. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say what stage in the womb a child be, gets a soul, sure. right, and becomes a human. It doesn't give us a, a hard day on that. Um, you know, but even that is enough to say we should probably... Abortion is probably a bad idea at the very least because, you know, are you willing to take the chance, right? Let's say let's legalize abortion, right? Are you willing to take the chance that uh, you are killing a human, right, who has the breath of life? That is, you know, and that is a, you know, Hebrew saying in the language to say that uh, given a soul, Um, you know, because if you say, well, we don't know when they get a soul, okay, so you're going to put abortion restriction in there. Even the possibility of killing someone who has sure. a soul that is a person. So now. this would this would apply to anyone who says, "I don't know when life starts." Yeah. In other words, you should err on the side of caution. Yeah. Then. Should you not? Yeah, exactly. You because not? even the like the possibility of killing another human. Oh yeah. Life, wow. Like you don't know, so we should, for safety's sake, ban abortion. I mean, that that just goes even more to the uh, ban abortion side of things. Yeah, I've heard it illustrated. I was telling you earlier today that it's. It's it's like pointing a gun at someone and and saying I don't know if this is loaded or not. 
Yeah. But, I, but I'm going to shoot anyways. And of course you'd be, you, you should err on the side of caution and Certainly. you'd be responsible otherwise. But we do know at some, there is God considers, uh, you know, life there in the womb at some stage in the womb. There's lots of, uh, passages in the old Testament that point to this. Job 31, 15 says, did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? So it goes to this idea of God forming us in the womb. And there is a kind of a mysterious aspect to this that, you know, the creation of life is kind of like a, it's a participatory thing, us and God both doing something, right? Both parents are contributing to the formation of life, but God is right there too. He gives the soul. He forms it, right? So God is forming something in the womb. Um, Isaiah 44, 2, this is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant. All right, so again, getting to this idea of God is at work there in the room. He's forming, he's creating you in the womb. Psalm 139, verse 13 through 16. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So there's this idea like God knows you ahead of time. Even before you're made, God knows you, right? Um, and so the form, your formation in the womb is intentional. It's something that God is ordaining, right? I mean, there is this, like, again, we're participating in this. We have something to say about the creation of life, but then God's right there, too, forming that also. And so an abortion is basically putting yourself in the place of God. It's, it's saying that, uh, you know, what God is making here, what God is knitting together here, you know, I'm going to interrupt uh, for the sake of my own convenience, you know. So um, anyway, we know, we know that, yeah, the, the, the what's in there, you know, is life. And what's in there is something that God is doing. You know, he's forming this life. Um, and, you know, there's even laws in the Old Testament about, like, you know, the harm, harming pregnant women, right? That um, uh, I was just reading this in um, Deuteronomy where, you know, to harm a woman and then cause harm to the baby inside of her is like a completely new level of punishment. <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, essentially lifted up there to the uh, same level of murder. Like uh, basically you're committing a double murder by killing a uh, pregnant woman and her baby. And so, you know, the, and that's been the ancient assumption, you know, the idea of abortion, you know, is really a more modern concept in terms of the, you know, how widely, and uh, in terms of how widely it's accepted, you know, then the ancient days, people saw that as something as horrendous and obviously ungodly. And it's, it's, you know, more modern, that this would be something that uh, is more accepted. And there's a reason that it's been accepted throughout history because, you know, people have understood for a very long time that this is not something that's godly or good. Um, so anyway, that's the, that's the biblical case here um, and why we're big on uh, uh, protecting life. But I think what really, you know, put, drives the nail into the coffin is, you know, the world's case for abortion, which is really satanic. Um, you know, to its core. And so you hear some of these arguments that really just reduce what's going on in the womb there to something that is just disgusting. You know, babies are called parasites that are in there. 
Um, you know, a lot of people say it's just a clump of cells. It's just a clump of cells. I mean, A, how do you know that? And B, I'm just a clump of cells too, Yeah. by your worldview. I mean, I think I'm more than that. I got a soul too, but what makes it you different than a baby and the womb? You're both clumps of cells, as you say. So, you know, I don't understand that. Yeah. I, I, I when I hear that, I, I gets the apologetics side of me uh, tingling a bit because, um, that is actually really, really consistent with an atheistic worldview, um, yeah. materialistic worldview, where, where there is no God, there is no anything that's not matter, um, there's no supernatural, things like that. And so that makes sense. And, and on that worldview, sure, we, yeah, we are all clumps of cells. Yeah. And so it's really hard, it's actually impossible to, to make a moral case for, for anything, you know, even, even blowing up or killing um, humans or yeah exactly yeah if you're gonna if you're gonna make the clump of cells argument then what you're really saying is it's no it's not even wrong to kill an adult grown human too <laughs> right no, so sure. uh, anyway uh, what's the next argument there oh yeah right. um, I, I've heard it's just a fetus of course this is yeah. uh, a pretty common one which is kind of a yeah it's, it's not a, a human it's a fe- it's not a baby it's a fetus yeah, yeah it's not right. a baby it's a fetus it's not a human it's a fetus which is just a uh, I don't know the technical term but probably uh, you know, a uh, categorical fallacy of sorts because it's a semantic argument, yeah, yeah, semantic argument. Sure. Just a red herring flash in the hand, but really it's a weird thing to say because of course it's a fetus, but a fetus is a stage of development. Yeah. Whereas a human is a species. And so the question is not whether or not it's a fetus. The question would be which species is that woman's fetus. Yeah. And of course we would say human, but, um, you know, every, many animals have fetuses, um, and so it would be equivalent, literally logically equivalent to saying it's not a human, it's a toddler. It's not yes. a human, it's an adult. You're, you're comparing apples and oranges. Yes. We want to know um, which species it is. Namely, is it human? Because that would bring in then what we've already talked about. Namely, you're made in the image of God. You are inherently valuable, despite which stage of development you're on. You could be on your deathbed or you could be a fetus. Yeah, that's cool because and you have value because you are a human species regardless. Yep. Yeah, that's uh, you know ultimately kind of what's at the uh, one of the things that's at the heart of the pro-abortion argument is you know, just arguments that cheapen the value of human life. Um, you know, because for example, you see a lot online arguments like, look at the you know I just saw this the other day like a picture of like a child in poverty sleeping on a not a great bed, right? A stinky blanket on it on the baby. And it was like, uh, you know, this is why we have abortion. So children aren't born into this, you know, but look at how that argument right there cheapens humans life. Is it really, would it really be better if someone went in there and killed that kid that was like, you know, do you think that's what that kid would want is to die? You know, who are you to say, you know, that it'd be better that we kill this person rather than he lives in uh, poverty? Yeah. Um, I, I keep hearing similar, um, arguments for, um, 400,000 kids in foster homes is yeah. the thing that I've been hearing floating around. Um, as if being in a foster home is worse than just being aborted. Yeah. Um, and I think someone actually, uh, uh, I don't know where, where I remember this from, but was quoted with saying essentially something along those lines. And people were asking, like, would you actually go up to a kid in foster care and say, you know, you're, you're, you should have been aborted. It would have been better. I'm sorry yeah. for your life. Right. Um, you know, we can, we can recognize... Not ideal situations, perhaps, but also we can't kill you just because yeah. you're not in an ideal situation. Yeah, mur- murdering is not a very good solution. 
Correct. You know, because that, that is another argument that this thrown is like uh, you Christians, you pro-lifers, uh, you only care about the kids when they're in the womb. And then when they're out of the womb, you don't care about them anymore. And A, that's uh, demonstrably false just by stats. You know, Christians are the number one group that, uh, you know, are setting up charities uh, and homes for children to live in and providing for mothers um, and adopting more than any other group. Uh, you had some Barna research yeah. in there too on that. Yeah. Um, Barna Research 2013 showed that Christians adopted children at over two times the rate as other U.S. households. So, so it is a, it's quite a weird argument to say, um, you know, the, the religious right or religious people in general, you, yeah, you only care about them when they're a baby or when they're preborn. Yeah. As soon as they're born, you don't care. And, um, once again, another emotional argument that has um, the stats showing quite the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Christians do care. And yeah, that's the answer. Uh, we are and we do. Sure. Um, and also, I don't have to personally adopt a child myself to be able to say killing them is wrong. Um, yes, correct. Yeah, that, it's, <laughs> it's a weird argument to say, if you won't adopt my child, I get to kill them. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, um, you know, because I imagine like these these arguments apply to like Nazi Germany. You know, it's like, uh, yeah, if you think uh, killing Jews uh, is wrong, um, well, then you better, you know, have them move in your house or whatever. Like, like you don't have to, uh, uh, be the savior of the world. You don't have to be the savior of the world to recognize that the Holocaust was horrendous and evil. Sure. Right. Uh, anyway, so, but, but, you know, yeah, Christians are, have been doing a lot throughout history are doing a lot still now. So the idea that yeah. they don't care, you know, is obviously ridiculous, but even not just Christians, but if you look at religious people in general, the, the, the charitable giving, for instance, is, uh, dare I say, exponentially larger than, yeah, yeah. Uh, than non-religious people's charitable giving to the poor and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because then that's whatever solution that the Christians have to offer better than what pro-abortion advocates have to offer, right? Because we have these, these solutions, these ways to provide, while imperfect and while it doesn't help you know everyone, uh, and there are plenty that slip through the cracks and you know, live in poverty, this kind of thing, it's a lot better than the pro-abortion advocates whose solution is, let's just kill them. It's not a good solution. Nope. Um, anyway, um, yeah, I mean, it really is uh, humans putting themselves in the position of, uh, you know, God, like deciding to take a life based on convenience. And as we already mentioned, yeah, most abortions are, the vast, vast, vast majority of abortions are performed based on, the, you know, when they're filling out the card and reason why it's no reason given. Okay, yeah. it's, I just don't want a baby. Um. You know, and so then another two that's constantly brought up is the idea that uh, pro-lifers want to control women's bodies. That that's like kind of the secret motivation that's really f- filling, you know, uh, the pro-life cause, um, and pushing it forward. And you know, that, that's just misinformation. There's there tons of people that buy into this, and it's really aggravating for me that that they would think that yeah, our secret motivation is we want to control women and put them down. A lot of people believe that. Um, cause they're not willing to see it from our perspective, which is that we want to protect life. We're trying to protect the baby's life. We're not interested in quote unquote controlling women's bodies. Um, we are interested in protecting the life of the unborn. And, you know, so, and I've all seen, they're saying things like, well, you're just forcing, you're controlling women by forcing them to give birth, forcing them to give birth. Um, but there's no one, there's no one that has been forced. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's that's what really doesn't make any sense to me because, you know, for the vast majority of cases, vast, 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 you know, a pregnancy is done based on, uh, you know, decisions that you made. Consent. Right? Consent that, that you did. Again, there's a very small fraction of uh, pregnancies that are, you know, result of rape or incest or something like that. Again, willing to have Horrific, more yeah. of a nuanced conversation there. But, you know, the vast, vast majority of pregnancies are based on your choice, a decision you made to engage in this behavior and risky behavior, you know, um, to get pregnant. There's no one forcing you to be pregnant. You know, you've brought yourself to this situation and live with the consequences. Um, and I, I see that as like a lot of the pro-choice thing is just kind of around like, how can we get out of living out the consequences of the decisions we made uh, to live our life? Um, anyway, yes, yes, yes. All these arguments ultimately I see is just a dodge. Uh, people want to engage in the sinful behavior they do. They want to go out. They want to have sex. Um, and they want to do these things and live without the consequences of that, right? It's a way to control that. And, uh, you know, even if that means taking the life of another. Um, you know, and it's a lot of this is just kind of the result of taking, uh, well, living a, a life, your life, apart from God's pattern. Because God's pattern for sex is something to be enjoyed in the context of a forever relationship, a committed one-on-one. And we're going to celebrate that, you know, through intimacy with one another but through the sexual revolution you know it's just kind of in our culture today a given that no people should be going out having sex with whoever they want whenever they want you know and the result of that is a lot of unplanned pregnancies and so thus the there's been a greater demand for abortion uh you know because people are you know getting uh saddled with the consequences of the decisions that they're making and um you know, serious, serious damage, cultural damage, damage to people have been done, you know, as a result of people abandoning God's plan for sex uh, and life. Um, and, uh, you know, as you remove God from the equation, make yourself your own God, um, you know, you, you, you embrace something else. You embrace a completely different worldview that puts you at the center and you as your own God. Sure. And I think that is um, dangerous and harmful even— uh, in and of itself there to, to live a life for self. I mean, yeah. we always talk about how the Bible is, is an other-centered uh, worldview where we love other people, we, we uh, do to others as they would have, we would have them do to us. Um, and I think that this um, abortion situation is, is really the, the magnifying glass on this life for self. Um, it is. As the 90% plus people are doing it for um, their own their own reasons economically advance their career just because I don't want to and and really uh, I mean to put it bluntly it, it's sacrificing a child at the on the altar of self um, and, w- and what I would like to do it is and you know that's the thing you know as people are walking away from God and embracing a life of self like you have to put something else like a significance a cause to live for and so this is something I've noticed as I've scrolled through social media the past week. Um, and, you know, covering myself with that filth is you just see like people are tr- are so enraged, you know, so worked up, so enraged. And and, um, you know, that's because when you abandon God, you embrace something else. Everyone has a religion. You know, everyone has a religion. It's just, you know, what's at the heart of that religion. So a lot of people, you know, when they abandon God, they're, they're embracing, you know, a secular worldview religion, you know, that. Uh, it has its rules and has its norms and has its acts of worship and uh, 
you know, and that's why a lot of, you know, the, the, the vitriol and anger and hate, it's like a religious, you know, almost fervor that people have for protecting abortion rights and things. And it's just, you know, amazing to see. And, uh, anyway, that's why we do celebrate, uh, Adam and I are celebrating this, uh, overturn of Roe v. Wade. Babies' lives are going to be protected. God values the lives of everyone, including the babies. Um, and that's a wonderful thing. Now, that brings up you know, an inter- interesting question here. Actually, I also mentioned, too, I am very grateful for the Christians who have fought for decades now sure. yeah, to try sure. to overturn this, you know, and standing up for this and haven't given up the fight there, you know. I mean, obviously, there's been people who've gone overboard and, you know, have beyond protesting, rioting, things like that. Uh, I mean, not to a severe degree, but it's happened before. There are some, like, really kind of crazy <laughs> pro-lifers out there yeah. that, uh, you know, the way they do things is kind of grating. But for the majority of pro-lifers, you know, they've been fighting it out, and there have been amazing, uh, you know, people standing up to speak for the rights of the unborn and, um, you know, insanely grateful for them. Anyway... How does this affect our witness? So here's the thing. We'll end on this point, uh, on this question. Because, you know, the talk about this overturn abortion has been interesting among Christian circles. So I follow lots of different uh, pastors and uh, Christian thought leaders. And so I'm, you know, I'm getting a lot of uh, different perspectives on this. And for the most part, they're pretty happy. Uh, However, there are some that are like, um, you know, we shouldn't be making a big deal out of this, that, uh, you know, we shouldn't really be talking about this. After all, we want to be winsome. And, uh, you know, if you are getting out there and saying that abortion is wrong and preaching on that or talking about that, you know, it's just going to drive people away from Christ. It's kind of the argument of like, let's not get political in church, right? Let's just tell people about Jesus. Let's make it all about Jesus. And that's it. And, uh, you know, the rest will follow. Um, And, you know, to an extent, I agree with that, right? In our central teachings, when we get up weekly in in my teachings and stuff that we give, you know, I do make a point to not get political where I don't need to, you know, and because, yeah, I do want non-Christians coming. I want them to feel welcome. I don't want to put unnecessary barriers between them and Jesus because ultimately it is all about Jesus and we're preaching Jesus and Jesus changes hearts and minds way better than we can, right? And so... You know, uh, it's way better to, instead of taking up a political cause, taking up the cause of Christ and letting him change hearts and minds. You know, I do agree with that, which is why I make sure my teachings are not politically centered. Uh, However, that doesn't mean, the other thing that Christians are called to do is to speak truth, right? And, And to stand up for people and to protect lives. You know, that's our, we're called to love. We're called to love and we're called to serve. And part of loving is protecting people. And uh, we also are called to speak out against falsehoods. I mean, that's the whole concept behind this podcast, right? Captive thoughts that we're tearing down uh, arguments and pretensions that are raised against the knowledge of Christ. Um, And so we are called to speak truth also. Um, And there are some issues, not all issues, right? Because some churches want to get up and do the right-wing politic thing, you know, and talk about the evils of uh, Obama and Biden and look at the economy. Like, no, I don't care. Economy, whatever. I want to talk about spiritual issues, biblical issues, and the area of life and the taking of life, I think, is a biblical area and that we should speak out against. Um, And so I do talk about abortion sometimes in my teachings. 
um, because I very much want, especially our Christian brethren and the church to understand, you know, its evil nature and to not be swept up by the lies, the vitriol, the secular religion that, uh, you know, puts the self at the altar, you know, of worship. And so, you know, and yeah, we want to protect and stand up for human life. And so abortion is one of the only very politically charged issues that I will talk about occasionally when I teach. Do you, do you agree, Adam? Yeah, sure. Um, and, and this question of, you know, how do we balance our stance with the desire to uh, reach non-believers, I think that is, uh, you know, a winsome technique. And I think that we can go about it where we are able to speak truth, but do have our words uh, seasoned with uh, grace. Yeah. Or as Matthew's, or as uh, Christ says, you know, be lights on a hill. Yes. Um, where, where we're not ashamed that, yes, we do have a different worldview than the culture. Um, welcome aboard. But, you know, practical day-to-day of, you know, if I had a, a, an unbelieving friend that um, was, you know, pro-choice or pro-abortion, um, and we're talking about it, yeah, practically speaking, I would approach it as gospel first. You know, how can I uh, reach them for Christ? How can they know Christ? Um, and everyone comes with baggage. Everyone comes with sin issues. Um, but we don't, we're, you know, we're not a sin-first, sin-focused uh, mission here. And so it's not clean up your act first, and then maybe you're, you'll be good enough for Christ. It's come to know Christ first. Yeah. And then let's have some cool, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as fellow Christians, let's have some cool debates yeah. over these other issues now. People who believe in, uh, you know, the, right, uh, the rightness of abortion or have even had abortions themselves, all alike, can come to know Jesus yeah, absolutely. You know, as they are. So that is something I definitely, you know, put out there. Anytime I talk about a politically charged issue like that is that do, that is front and center. Something I really try to, to do is, you know, put Christ out there. Even though I'm talking about the truth of some things, um, you know, ultimately I don't want to alienate. So a lot of this, you know, just comes down to ta- having tact, you know, and I read today tact is the art of uh, convincing someone of the truth, uh, while not making an enemy, basically. Okay. Yeah. That's a good definition. So and that's right. I want to not make enemies and I want to introduce people to Christ. And, uh, so yeah, for an uh, issue of wisdom and tact, you know, I wouldn't be opening up with non-Christians who are trying to share Christ. You're like, what do you think about abortion? You know, <laughs> sure. <Not wise. laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. so yeah, it doesn't have to affect our witness in that way. Um, and we do want to put Christ first. Uh, however, does that mean we as a church should remain silent on the abortion issue? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, we do need to stand up for what's right and what's good and, you know, denounce what is evil, what is absolutely black and white wrong, um, because that is, it does lead to change. And as we've just seen, you know, we've, we've seen mm-hmm. it uh, overturned here. And there's been a lot that have stood up for the rights of life. And uh, without that voice, without the Christian voice out there making the case for the value of human life, you know, where would we be as a culture today? Yeah, and and I also do want to say that that Christ does have tremendous, infinite amount of forgiveness and grace for people who have been through this firsthand experience. Yeah, um, I, I I know Christians who have had abortions. I've heard um, Christian men speak who have you know had their girlfriends have abortions and things like that, and um, come to know Christ. And it's you know tremendous transformation, tremendous grace to be had. I was, um, I'm not sure if they're a Christian, but I was, I was just listening to, um, some OBGYN 
doctors mention how they've done like hundreds and maybe even thousands of abortions personally wow. and have changed yeah. since and become pro-life. I'm not sure if that's if they're Christian or not, like I said, but, but, but point being a tremendous, um, potential and opportunity and no need to, uh, think of, uh, people without a, with a different opinion as, you know, uh, impossible to change, absolute evil. Christ will never reach you. Things like that. It's, yeah. it's just uh, not true. Christ can reach anyone. Yep. That's exactly right. And you know, if the, but Christ, he didn't just go around preaching salvation through belief in him. That was a big part of it, <laughs> but he would also talk to issues of his day. And, you know, obviously a lot of his, uh, um, you know, teachings and uh, like were directed against the religious elite, the Pharisees of the day, but that was what was popular. You know, it yeah. was the Pharisees and what they taught and their false teachings. There's barely a distinction between religious and politics. Yeah, there was barely. <laughs> and you know what? Jesus had a lot to say there. And, he, and yeah. if Jesus uh, was physically, you know, walking around today, like in a, um, you know, I, I think he, he would robe, have something maybe? to say about this. What's that? White robe. Perhaps. Perhaps. White room. <laughs> uh, or if the prophet Jeremiah was, <laughs> showed up here, I think he would decry this. You know, I think he would have something to say, but I don't think he'd remain quiet on these things. Um, so anyway, there is, that's all to say there's room for Christians to speak up uh, for uh, uh, preborn life. And uh, we should speak up on these issues and make case for it. Um, but we have to balance that with um, you know, trying to win people for Christ and uh, you know, creating an environment in our churches. And like you know, in particular, our, our Saturday night you know, main service that we have at our church, um, you know, not making the political thing the main thing. You know? And I, I really try to go out of my way to, to make sure that's the case because that's an area, that's a place where we want to invite the non-believer to come in here and, and not throw unnecessary um, blocks in the way of their mm-hmm. receiving Christ. Absolutely. Um, so anyway, that's all things in balance, but we do have to make sure that we are, you know, we understand truth and we understand things from a biblical perspective. Um, hence the vision of our podcast here, Captive Thoughts. Indeed. Anyway, thanks for joining us this week. Uh, Roe v. Wade overturned. Um, wonderful. Still got more fight ahead of us here. Um, and we'll see you uh, next episode. Next episode, we are uh, looking to do a history of our church, uh, Freedom Fellowships. We're going to have uh, Greg and Keith, uh, two of our founding elders, going to be on the podcast. So I hope you'll tune in for that episode. See you next time.